everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Tang. Our guest today is Vinay Nier, founder and CEO of Tiffin, a fintech platform that drives personalization for wealth using AI and investment intelligence. Tiffin operates a collection of fully owned subsidiaries in wealth and investments that are shaping the future of investor experience. Vinay was also the founder and chairman of 55IP, which was successfully sold to JP Morgan. As a serial entrepreneur and investor, Vinay was also a former finance faculty member of Wharton. His teaching focuses on venture capital, private equity, and entrepreneurship. He is also recognized as an expert in the areas of sustainable and responsible investing, and has written Investing for Change, a book published in 2008 by Oxford University Press. In today's episode, we discuss Vinay's journey from academics to entrepreneurship, how Tiffin is helping transforming wealth management for consumers and financial advisors, and how Tiffin is pioneering in the space using Gen AI through partnership with incumbents. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Hi, Vinay. Welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Thank you, Zoe. Good to meet you. Yeah, good to meet you as well. I'm super excited about our, our conversation today. You're definitely like, I feel like the 21st century Renaissance man falling into the <laughs> intersection of academics, uh, professional, and uh, and you are like serial entrepreneur. Um, so maybe to start with, would you please tell us a bit more about your story? What led you to fintech and what led you to explore different facets of fintech as professor and also as an entrepreneur? Happy to. Uh, it's probably an accident uh, that I got to fintech. Uh, my my undergrad was in engineering and uh, chemical and industrial engineering, and uh, from there I switched to a PhD in economics and finance. I had an interest in business even in undergrad. In fact, remember interning at uh, American Express Bank, taking courses in business administration. Uh, so I guess the blend between that engineering and the economics finance PhD uh, led me to what most PhDs do, which is an academic career right after that. So as you know, I was teaching at Wharton, uh, mostly at Wharton, taught a few courses at MIT. And that added another, I would say, layer to my understanding, which is uh, uh, teaching, science, research, and uh, all those dots connected to essentially uh, build uh, fintech businesses. So, so I doubt I could have I could have done what I've done, and I could do what I'm doing if all those things didn't happen. Uh, which is why I say it's largely accidental. You said it's accidental. I'm sure there are a lot of blood, sweat, and tears uh, coming behind. So you touched upon your days in like PhD and academics. Curious if you can share a little bit with our audience, what were some of your primary interest area and then what are some of the research takeaways from your perspective? Yeah, I started my research actually uh, linking corporate finance with asset pricing. Uh, this was in the early 2000s and my dissertation was actually in corporate governance and the impact of corporate governance to stock and bond prices. So. You're too young to remember those days, but uh, Enron, for example, was happening then, and there were these corporate governance scandals. And a lot of the science had viewed corporate finance and asset pricing as separate. Uh, so some of my work was to bridge the two things, 
from where I got interested more into behavioral aspects as well as the the ESG aspects of investing. Um, ended up writing a book called Investing for Change, which was about how investing has an impact on the environment, society. So governance became broader than just corporate governance. It became social <clears throat> and employees. So that's how my research evolved. I was teaching in parallel private equity and venture capital. Um, and the, the teaching topics and my research topics largely were, were happening in parallel uh, while I was still in academia. And then considering your like extensive research uh, in behavioral finance and then like socially responsible investing, just wondering how does that shaped your um, overall strategies in the field of asset and wealth management? Uh, maybe can you share like a couple instances where research outcomes may have like challenged or reinforced current like practices in the sector? Yeah, I think the main takeaway from from for me from not just my research, from the research that a lot of fellow academics were also doing around this on those two areas you mentioned. One is that people behave in all sorts of of ways that uh, that sometimes may not be good for them. And the power of of nudges to get folks to do things that are long term uh, healthy outcomes. I think is incredible, and the value of those nudges, especially in wealth management uh, or or health management, I think is incredibly powerful. So that was one appreciation of that fact. The second was that the relatively it's relatively recent that we've been thinking about the impact of investment on uh, society, environment, and other things that matter to people. So. The other big takeaway for me was it's not just about um, risk and returns when it comes to why and how people make investment decisions. Um, and that is not a bad thing because sometimes you could do things for for uh, other reasons that may end up being better for risk and returns, but you don't think of risk and returns starting point as a starting point. So. And these two things are not that different because the behavioral research tells you that people make decisions for all sorts of reasons. And sometimes those reasons could be externalities your investment can have uh, on on viewpoints, on uh, things you want to support or things you don't want to support. So getting, a, let's say, a, a less black and white view of the world and a more broader view of the world than just risk return and the rational investor was probably the summary of uh, the research in both ESG as well as in uh, behavioral finance. That's fascinating because I'm I'm a big fan of behavioral finance as well. And then um, when I first read Richard Thaler's book, it is, um, it is very refreshing compared to the more traditional like efficient economy theory um, because in in the real in the real life, you definitely see people making irrational decisions with their money. Um, like I was involved in the research before, where you would expect people should spend a lot of their time on like managing their personal finances, but instead, people would much rather like spending time on leisure or like getting go out and get food. Um, those other decisions. So wondering, 
from your perspective, what are the nudges that are, could be helpful to kind of pushing people to get more involved? And then, as you said, manage not just their wealth, but their health. Yeah. So I think the question you're asking is a, is a fascinating one. How do you get people to go from what they do to what they should do? Um, and and I think uh, a lot of our view, and as we build things within Tiffin, is meet people where they are and then improve things one step at a time. And uh, in the context of wealth, I think broadly there are four steps around it. One is aggregating information. You need to know uh, the individual uh, as completely as you can. Right? And there have been businesses that have started off around data aggregation, largely have shown that this is really valuable. Uh, the second step to this is we had to simplify uh, all interactions around finance because the language and the method of interactions have just made it very intimidating and foreign when the reality is it is not that complicated. Um, so simplifying it. And this is why some of the things going on with language and generative AI uh, is fascinating to enable that. Tiffin has been pretty early towards that movement. So we have a front row seat to how language can simplify finance. I'll give you an example. You don't have to know tickers um, to find products, as an example. It's just another way to how, how you would shop for uh, clothes on uh, eBay or products. You could, sh you could do the same uh, in finance. It's just a simple example of how you can simplify it. The third element is most people don't know what to do. Um, so, so you have to provide them with insights. So uh, you could come and tell someone in November, hey, did you realize that your investment has tax losses and I could help um, optimize it for you? But someone has to come and tell you that. Um, and the last step is someone has to do it for you. So I think broadly meeting people where they are and then giving them a snapshot of their financial life, simplifying it, suggesting an improvement and doing it for them, rinse and repeat is how you get people to a better outcome over time. And that's been kind of a core philosophy of ours as we built products uh, and companies under Tiffin. Got it. Yeah, I would definitely love to dive into Tiffin and then maybe just to give our audience some context because I know there are different aspects of Tiffin. There's Tiffin Wells, there's Tiffin AI. So maybe just for the audience sake, would you mind um, provide a little bit of background on what is kind of Tiffin's mission and what are the different functions of the different division? Absolutely. Look, Tiffin stands for Technology and Innovation for Finance. And it's really a platform to, to, to start things that affect wealth outcomes for individuals. Uh, we have two tools, two instruments to affect wealth outcomes. One is technology, so it's application of technology. And two is uh, new business creation. So we believe in the power of a clean sheet of paper. And uh, my view when I started Tiffin was that there's some fascinating changes that are going on in technology. This is happening really fast, faster than most people realize. And they can be applied into asset wealth management areas 
in ways that could truly improve the end individual's wealth outcomes. And Tiffin was set up to launch companies with that mission. So we, we in our generation one, cohort one, we had about five companies. Uh, now we have another four companies we have launched. So Tiffin's really a holding company, if you will, of interrelated companies, all of which are applying technology to change wealth outcomes for people. Got it. And then just maybe a follow-up question on that. Are the new business um, arm of Tiffin mostly an incubator? Yeah, typically we start companies in-house. Uh, we built an ecosystem with uh, several strategic partners, um, JP Morgan, Morningstar, Franklin Templeton, Hamilton Lane, and um, from our existing client base as well, often we, we get to hear problems from them, which, which is the genesis of a new business. We get to see trends. So often we start ideas from scratch, and then we hire CEOs as these ideas become a bit more mature. Uh, the, the executives we bring on, I think of us as really hiring early stage executives as opposed to bringing an entrepreneur in and seed their idea. Yeah, I, you know, in my previous role at Oliver Wyman, I definitely worked with a lot, lot of large enterprises as well. Um, and I see those challenges when you're trying to incubate products or ideas in-house. Um, but they, they, they are on the front row with all the customers. So they actually understand a lot of the pinpoints. Um, so I think it's the partnership model is definitely very valuable from that perspective. Absolutely. So I think of Tiffin really as a platform for serial entrepreneurship. And we partner, it's almost like I have a co-founder for different companies and the co-founders may differ. But uh, essentially, if it's not a company that we found ourselves or think it's strong enough for us to found ourselves, we probably wouldn't uh, back it. Got it. And then maybe touch upon the other aspect, why you say like Tiffin technology or like Tiffin companies, how would you kind of currently organize Tiffin? Like what are the main branches of activities going on? And then what are the actually main products that are out there? So at a very high level, instead of walking you through each of the companies, let me just give you maybe a common framework that ties all of them together. Our view is most people have the money in three places. So the self-directed account, which would be your typically a brokerage account, uh, E-Trade or Fidelity or Robinhood or Betterment or Acon, some self-directed account. You have some of your money uh, with, with uh, advisors, if you have advisors, and um, that would be the whole financial advisory space. In the US, that's about $20 trillion today that advisors manage for about $47 million uh, individuals. And the third pool is your workplace, typically a 401k, maybe some other things as well. So, so as an individual, your money is sitting in, in three of these places. Uh, the mix may vary for each individual. The, the allocations may vary. But over time, you will find that people have the money in these three places. What Tiffin's trying to do um, at a very foundational level is to change the experience in all of these three places. So some of our businesses are B2B businesses that work with advisors. 
and it helps them grow their business, bring more people into the world of advice, uh, improve the personalization that they offer, enable more client engagement. So changing the entire experience on the advised space. We also have a business which focuses on the workplace and changes the whole experience for an employee when they think about financial advice. We have a direct-to-consumer business, Magnify, FI. The, that is a direct-to-consumer business that sits on top of all self-directed accounts and almost acts as an intelligence agent for you. It acts as the expertise you need to control your financial future. And that sits on top of the self-directed accounts. So Tiffin is essentially a collection of B2C and B2B companies all trying to affect places, ecosystems, where people have their wealth, because that's how you affect wealth outcomes. I love this framework. Uh, maybe we go like, on each side and deep dive a little bit more. On the B2C side, uh, you mentioned Magnify, and I know in a previous interview you said you want Magnify to be kind of the Google in wealth management for consumers. Um, there, are, With this like new surge of applications such as Robinhood, which enables more consumers to participate in like self-brokerages, um, curious to hear what are the main challenges you see and what do you see like Magnify really help? Probably like I would say like there are probably a couple different types of personas. There's like the more active traders, more system, more passive investors and in ETFs. What are the different challenges do you see like for each of them? And how do you see Magnify bring value to these different types of customer profiles? So you're absolutely right. The biggest challenge in the consumer self-directed space is everyone has a very different uh, perspective to, to investing. Um, and historically, people that have tried to build businesses largely handicapped by technology, but have built very rigid workflows. So so if you think about the robo-advisor world, you come answer these five, six questions, you get a portfolio, you execute the portfolio. And many people, that's not how they want to think about uh, investing. And, and of course, uh, Robin Hoods and Reddits of the world have have attracted a different type of investor who may want to take a speculative thematic investment into a single stock or a theme. Um, and then there are there are hobbyist traders who are buying research products from gurus and uh, investing based on that. Um, so you find that there are a lot of personas um, that that approach this market. And historically, there have been companies that have tried to really focus on different niches one at a time, build something, and then find that it's very expensive to expand their business uh, after, after some critical threshold. And what I think has changed, and this is why the opportunity at Magnify is so exciting to us, is today you actually have technology which is, is, is akin to having a librarian in the library where it can go pick the right book for you and give it to you. Till now, we didn't have that librarian. You had to go and um, shop the aisles yourself to pick the right book without knowing how things are organized. So now the same technology can answer questions for all these personas. The questions might be different, 
right? I could come in and say, I want to invest to support women's rights. Give me some products. Or I could come in and say, I want to save for retirement. Uh, how should I do it? Uh, a hobbyist trader might come and say, compare energy with tech over the last one year. Uh, so the questions people ask will differ a lot. And today, Magnify can answer all these questions. So it can appeal to a much broader audience, a much bigger top of the funnel, and act as this intelligence layer on top of um, their investments. So you could connect your Fidelity, E-Trade, Robinhood, Betterment accounts into Magnify. And then you might want to ask, what am I diversified enough across all these things? Uh, so it's really a new paradigm which allows you to build intelligence on top of self-directed accounts and answer questions based on what your questions are rather than based on what I can answer. That sounds like the ideal solution. I, I probably need to like check it out a little bit more. Um, but I guess one of the challenges sometimes is like real life is very complicated, as you know. And then um, I feel like some, a lot of time the consumer's question is not really oriented around like one specific financial goal, but like different facets of the individual's life. For example, how, like you said, how do I prepare for retirement? But at the same time, how can I maintain my current lifestyle or what are the benefits that actually should, I'm, I do currently probably don't know, but I should take advantage of in order for me to provide a better life for myself and for my family. So when um, there are like more complex or nuanced questions, like how in practice Magnify, maybe can you share with a couple examples of how Magnify can help an end consumer with like solving these questions? Yeah, look, you're right. Uh, there are nuances and Magnify has limitations today on what it can do and what it cannot. Obviously, the, the vision is to keep adding more and more uh, capabilities and modules to answer these things. But what I would highlight is the science exists to address these questions. Uh, it's the delivery of that in a simple way digitally to individuals at scale that we are talking about, right? When, when, when you go to a financial advisor who is relatively sophisticated, they are doing cash flow management alongside goals planning. It's not just a goals planning, retirement being a goal, or just cash flow planning, which is maintaining your lifestyle. So a cash flow-based, goal-based approach to, to planning and investment is... Um, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. I think the key thing is how do we deliver these things in simple ways? Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like a couple of years ago, I was involved in a paper that we kind of envisioned the future as well. Um, and we say like the wealth management for B2C space specifically, it's more like giving them a map. You kind of type in a question and then they kind of need to navigate themselves. They might get lost on the road. Um, and it sounds like currently... Magnify is trying to be the Google, but probably one day you're trying to be probably the autopilot or like selfless driving car. Is that kind of the end vision for Magnify? It's more a co-pilot, I would say, rather than uh, the pilot uh, or the autopilot. Uh, I think that the, the co-pilot, because I, I believe that when it comes to your money, most people want some control 
And the reason that today they they have to make a trade-off with expertise and control. And most people today say, okay, I want the control, but I don't know stuff. Or I say, okay, uh, let me give it to you because you seem to know stuff, but then I don't have control. So being a co-pilot that gives you the expertise, that gives you suggestions, that tells you, hey, that's stupid, don't do it, or this is really something you should consider doing, but it's your decision, I think this allows the individual to gradually decide how much control they want to cede or not. So, and again, that's a very individual preference. So I would like for Magnified to be your assistant, butler, concierge, whatever it is, and how you want to use that is is really up to you, the individual, which will which will depend on how much control you want to keep, seed, uh, and there are regulatory aspects to it also. The workflow of Magnify involves aggregation and then simplifying the whole kind of user experience. You provide insights and then you help the user execute. There are like various different challenges for each of these steps. For example, like you said, there are players like Plaid who's trying to integrate data from all across all different financial institutions but it's largely unstandardized these days. And when it actually comes in, the data becomes less insightful because probably the data is uncategorized or like categorized to the wrong category. So when it goes into like a large language model, it becomes less insightful or when the user find an error in it, they become less trust trusting of this solution. So out of these steps, which steps would you say is like most pressing to solve in terms of like the challenges, and then uh, if there's like a hurdle for Magnify today, what do you think is the biggest hurdle? Yeah, that's a great point. We each each step has its challenges, but I think to your um, illustration, the step we don't control the most is the one that is the most challenging for us, which is actually the aggregation side, uh, and. You know, the aggregation technology has come a long way. Quality is much better. It is improving every single year. There are new companies starting out in it. But the reality is that it, if, if you have private securities or something not public equities, it's all, the quality automatically drops significantly. So I would say we are dependent on improvements going on there for for all the follow-through steps, right? But at the same time, as far as public securities go, we feel pretty good about where things are. And that by itself is valuable to many people because most people have some public stocks or public ETFs or public mutual funds uh, across different accounts. So it's an evolution. And I would say that I feel pretty confident it gets addressed, but it's definitely an evolution. And then maybe we switch gear to the B2B side a little bit. Um, my personal view is like the financial advisor is probably not going anywhere. Uh, like you said, um, with like the higher wealth band, they probably have more complicated needs and then you need dedicated financial advisor to help them with addressing those needs. Um, it, I, my questions are like, first of all, do you agree? And then secondly, like how is Tiffin helping like financial advisors specifically with providing better client experiences and solutions. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I totally agree. It's technology plus human more and more. So it's not like, you know, self-directed accounts, as they improve the experience, 
the financial advisors also improve their experience. Uh, so money may shift how much is with advisors, how much is self-directed, how much is workplace, but these things go through cycles and people keep reacting to make sure that they have the appropriate share. So I don't think advisors are going anywhere. I think advisors are going to get better. Uh, they're going to get better largely by adopting uh, technology. And in fact, today, an average advisor will have about 150 clients, somewhere between 100 to 150. I think they'll have 300 to 500 clients uh, by leveraging technology. So what that tells you is that they will have, they can reduce their minimums to deal with more clients, which means more people will enter the world of advice. So I actually believe that if you think about the number of people that get advice today and you think of the number of people that are investing without advice, there is an overlap. Most people have both a brokerage account and an advisor. But that overlap will increase a lot more. And we are trying to really help the advisor improve their um, their uh, growth through, it's almost AI for organic growth. Because most advisors are our client service folks, our sales folks, our trust building, relationship building folks. They don't really typically think of, um, you know, what is the best way for me to invest this dollar to grow my business? Um, and there's a lot of data today in this industry, and there's a lot of intelligence, and less than 1% of the data is being used to answer questions today. So we act, Tiffin Wealth is one of our businesses that acts as an outsourced data science AI team for wealth enterprises. And it can answer several questions, all focused on growth for them, organic growth for them, which in turn means more people entering the world of advice. Uh, we have few other businesses all catering to advisors, some of which are building co-pilots for the financial advisors to answer questions immediately on behalf of their clients. For example, the advisor could say, I'm going to go meet Zoe, my client, give me three things to talk about. Um, that's changing client experience in a very tangible way. Uh, we have uh, AI assistance for private markets. So many advisors find that a very complicated space. And we have a JV with Hamilton Lane where we got the data, we built an AI assistant there. We also have a business where we've created a modern charitable giving experience. For because we saw a gap and many advisors were getting questions from the next generation on philanthropy and charitable giving. And the existing solutions we felt were a few decades old and a bit outdated. So we created Tiffin Give as a outsourced, personalized, charitable giving solution. So these are just examples of things we are trying to do to change the value proposition that the advisor brings to the client and to help the advisor grow faster to get more people into the world of advice. Yep. And then I know you guys recently announced a partnership with JP Morgan, which is all the headlines. Congratulations on that. Um, and then that is kind of the purpose is to help financial advisors to be more efficient and then provide broader sets of value proposition for the end clients. There are a lot of buzz this year with generative AI. So you touched upon one example, which is like 
provide, providing financial advisors probably a couple of co- top talking points before they talk to a client. Across the whole advisory value chain, what are the kind of the couple key points you see like LLM or generative AI can bring value to the financial advisors um, other than just probably the talking points aspect? Across the workflow, uh, I think what, what, what one thing folks sometimes underestimate is if you think of wealth, and let's add insurance and accounting, wealth insurance accounting, collectively on software, they spend about 10 billion a year. Uh, but they spend 360 billion a year on services. So I think the efficiency improvements that um, the Gen AI applications can bring in on services is significant. You know, when we, we're talking about the AI assistant for alts, right? Today, if the advisor has all these questions, they have to go talk to a team that sits between the investment team and the advisor to answer all these questions, which is firstly very inefficient, very expensive, very time-consuming, and sometimes doesn't answer all the questions as well. So now you have this 24-7 uh, solution, real-time answers, without this entire uh, capability and group of people you need to create out there. So there are efficiency opportunities, which are material. There are personalization opportunities, because if, if when I ask the AI assistant, I'm, I'm going to go meet Zoe, give me three things to talk about, the answer is different. If I said I'm going to go meet someone else, give me three things to talk about. That level of intelligence is also going to be very different. Previously, an advisor might use the same speaking points for everyone. So the personalization is very different. Um, the Overall, I would say there are things you could do today that you couldn't do. And then there are things you're already doing that could be done more efficiently. And the Gen AI world, I think, will touch both areas. And then you kind of took on the approach of partnering with uh, like a more established enterprise like JP Morgan. I'm sure you know Morgan Stanley is choosing to build things in-house. Um, and that there are a lot of startups trying to kind of get into this space. Out of these like three models, do you think wealth management is more prone for like disruption or do you feel like it's more kind of prime for our existing enterprises to build these solutions because they already have all the client relationship and client data? So I would say that JPM is also doing a lot of things internally and firm like Morgan Stanley is also partnering. So it's it's the existing uh, firms, I think are doing both. They're, they're building and partnering. Um, and it's just moving so fast, this whole space, that it's, I think, impossible for someone to just try to do things in-house without uh, being able to also partner with startups, with with uh, other capability providers. So um, I think we will see a lot of collaborative solutions coming out. And the incumbents today, especially post-2020, I think appreciate the value for speed. And they also appreciate that many of them are just not set up organizationally for experimentation or for moving fast. So... So I think that the the ecosystem 
um, is actually much more collaborative than it was before. And everyone understands the opportunity in Gen AI. You know, it's not, I mean, take cloud. Cloud is obviously a massive opportunity, but it took a long time for people to truly appreciate it and move from on-prem to cloud. Um, or even the internet, many people were fine not being digital uh, and they still had a fine business. What's interesting about Gen AI is everyone's talking about it. Uh, at all, all the CEOs I've spoken to have an, have, have an open discussion on this. So there is intent, there is appreciation of speed, there's an appreciation of an organization's, large organization's inability to experiment. And when you put these things together, I think you'll see a lot more interesting partnerships. And where Tiffin, I think, is unique in that many of these organizations, they don't want to have 25 partners. They want a few partners that they can truly work with. And because Tiffin is a collection of these companies and solutions, I think it sits in a very unique place to be the AI for wealth platform. As uh, I, don't, I can't think of any other firm that could truly own AI for wealth, at least in the short term. Got it. Um, you touched upon a lot of great points, which is like there's this with cloud as well, and with, especially with financial services where like data or like proprietary informations are very sensitive. People probably be hesitant to move towards a new technology, for example, cloud and not generative AI. Um, for example, like Morgan Stanley now, they're like partnering with OpenAI, and then OpenAI also launched enterprise license. Uh, from your perspective, do you see from an infrastructure level, financial services, like you said, well, partner with someone like Tiffin, who is the wealth management AI company, but you guys are still building on top of OpenAI, or are you guys building your own proprietary model? Yeah, I think the 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 developer tools, and I put OpenAI in there. So if you think of the whole AI stack, of course, there is the foundational hardware layer, right? Chips, NVIDIA, there's the cloud where you have to process all these things. There is developer tools like OpenAI and, and Llama 2 and a uh, whole host of different things. For us, we are applying all of this into the world of asset and wealth management. Sure, there will be fine-tuning of these models, applications of them. We could uh, my view is the LLMs are all going to be commoditized and some will be better to answer this question, some will be better to answer that question. You'll have to constrain it, you'll have to fine-tune it using your data. But uh, Tiffin's not trying to build its own LLM, if you will. Uh, it's, a, it's a derivative at best. The incumbents, they have an appreciation to partner with startups um, but they probably don't want to partner with 25 different companies. Um, there are a lot of startup builders out there who would love to kind of partner with incumbents. And then Tiffin is this unique position to partner with a lot of them. Um, do you have any advice for startup founders out there if they want to partner with incumbents? Because the typical kind of a process to get in touch with them or like potentially partner with them is very could be very long and complex. So I'm sure they will really appreciate your advice in this aspect. Yeah, look, it's tough first. And I think the best way to partner with an incumbent is to is to get them as a client to your product. I think that um, if you are building a product that could serve any particular strategic, uh, I think I would start there, deliver value to them as a vendor 
and in uh, your future capital raises, approach them to participate as an investor. And I think that com- combination of being a client and an investor is how the partnership would start. Got it. But even as they provide a product per se, probably the, the incumbents are still a little bit uncomfortable with just kind of a taking this new product. Um, and as sometimes AR criticized for being like a black box, how would you approach kind of the sales process if you want to be a vendor for incumbents? Yeah, I think one of the biggest reasons is most uh, startups uh, have longevity risk, right? So you don't want to go sign a deal with some startup that may not exist. So first is I think you have to really make sure that your firm, if, if you are pursuing large enterprise deals, that's whale hunting. So you need to make sure you're in the right boat to go whale hunting. And um, if you're not, then you should you should catch tunas, not whales. And I think you should move faster and do smaller deals to get that momentum. I see too many startup founders focus on this one big deal that they'll close in three years, and three years becomes four, money becomes two years. They just find it difficult to survive. So I would say, you know, take the baby steps, get some revenue momentum. Um, so you can uh, you can do some longer, bigger deals alongside some of the smaller, faster ones. So you've been in the academic space for a long time, and then you started Ada Investment and now Tiffin. Um, curious to hear, like, was there a kind of a tipping point that you made made you to make that transition? And then once you kind of entered a entrepreneurship world, what are the biggest surprises um, compared to the academic space? Yeah, for me, the the transition from academia to to serial entrepreneurship was pretty um, natural, I guess, because it brought together. As I said earlier, I was an engineer by training. I wanted to build things, and uh, and um, being in academia long term, I, I loved the teaching aspect of it, the learning aspect of it, but it was in building things that you could. You could uh, uh, clearly look at and say, you know, is is uh, has impact in a practical way today. So, so that was almost inevitable or not a choice for me. But I think um, that was the transition. Now, in terms of, in terms of, uh, you know, I think academia has helped me a lot in actually running a business, um, and in helping be more scientific about about things, being more data-oriented, being more process-oriented, being more focused, being more measurement-oriented. Um, but also there are a lot of things that uh, I had to learn and I am learning, uh, which mostly have to do with in a different mindset. It's a totally different mindset. It's a totally different sport. So you could be a great athlete in this sport and terrible at the other sport. Um, and I think that a lot of it to me was less about skills and more about mindset uh, training. And you know, one example I'll just leave you with is, is uh, the value of speed. In academia, there is very little value for speed. Uh, in, in entrepreneurship, there is tremendous value to, to make fast decisions and produce things fast and get it out in the market. Um, uh, things take one year instead of two years. You spend half the money and you get twice the growth rate. So 
it's just a very different environment and yet you you have to get to that frame of mind to make decisions with less information probably lower quality decisions um iterate so so there are many such examples of how you're you have to train your mindset for a different sport yeah um well i guess the beauty of like you said there's like certain things that are unsimilar between the two sports but if you are an athletic person i'm sure like an nba star probably wouldn't feel that difficult picking up like golf or like similar um like sports cuz you can use that muscle a lot of this like similar so it's great to hear there are certain like similarities that are kind of consistent once you enter entrepreneurship and there are others that probably uh requires a slightly different mindset that's true yeah probably just to wrap up i know you are you know previously a, a professor at Wharton since i'm currently at Wharton and a large part of our audiences are Wharton students can you share with us probably your like one one or two of your like recommended courses to take at Wharton to kind of better prepare you for the world well you're going to have some of my ex colleagues complain <laughs> um, yes <laughs> <laughs> but uh like it depends on what you want to do right so obviously if you want to uh pursue uh entrepreneurial uh path which means investing in entrepreneurs as much as being an entrepreneur um the course that i've been teaching and now i think um david is probably teaching it the the entrepreneurial finance class the finance of innovation and obilge was teaching it for some time i have another uh friend investor advisor dave potrak who used to teach a course on on managing change in organizations if you want to think more managerially as an executive in a larger firm i think that's a tremendous course so in some ways with the advice i would really share is think about the position you want to be at first and then reverse engineer from there on which courses would be most impactful for our fellow listeners out there do not spoil it to the professors uh just take the advice and then use it with your own discretion Uh well thank you so much again Vinay for sitting down with us it's been such a great pleasure and I wish we have more time I could sit I can stay here all day and talking to you about wealth management um but uh really appreciate your time Thank you so thanks for the invitation Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech podcast If you enjoyed the show please leave a review and give us a follow on social media We appreciate the support I hope that you continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. We will be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor Rafael Austria, and until next time, this is your host Zoe.